10 things going. Have you heard about the new MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle? The MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle is the easiest, most advanced nozzle ever, protecting you from the dangers of diesel exhaust fumes. With its patented flex magnet technology, the Pro Nozzle easily attaches with one hand from a standing position, can snap on from any angle, and fits flush to the apparatus, saving a ton of space. And MagnaGrip is the only exhaust removal system that offers a true 100% seal. For free grant assistance and to learn more, go to magnagrip.com. I want to welcome everybody in. Uh, we're a little bit delayed here today. We got some, we got a lot of stuff going on. Um, as always, uh, we're going to start with our introductions and make sure everybody's uh, on the same page. And and we're super excited with our guest tonight. Uh, it's one of those uh, moments that you get to hear from somebody who's going to bring a, just an unbelievable wealth of knowledge uh, to the show tonight. Uh, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. Uh, as always, I'm Todd Edwards, um, retired out of the city of Atlanta after 31 years and very fortunate, very blessed to uh, be able to work with some other departments and do a little bit of traveling here and there. I'm currently in Louisiana at a conference, so I'll probably not be as engaged tonight. So, uh, fortunately, my uh, co-host is going to be able to carry the load for me because I'm trying to balance a few other things here today. So, let me get that started uh if uh, you can introduce yourself for us, Anthony. Anthony Rowett, uh, Mobile, Alabama. I've been here uh, coming up on 15 years, three years prior to that of volunteering in northern New Jersey, uh, traveling the country with Todd and some other guys. And uh, like Todd said, just definitely excited about what we're going to talk about tonight with our guest. But let him uh, introduce himself and tell everyone about himself and himself. Yes, 100%. So I'm not even going. I want him to introduce himself. I think everybody's going to recognize the name really quick. Um, uh, he's well known. Uh, he's had some experiences that really will help the entire fire service that I, that I want him to share with us this evening. So go ahead, sir. Oh, good evening, everybody. This is Clark Lamping. I'm calling you from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, Clark County Fire Department in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, and I'm just happy to be on the show tonight. I'm glad that the first nine guests you guys invited couldn't make it, and so I'm here, which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and, Todd, you know what, Todd? I listen to all your podcasts, and every single one of your podcasts you start with, man, we've got a lot of stuff going on all the time. You two are so busy all of the time. <laughs> do, you even, do you even own houses? If I were you two, I wouldn't uh, even own a house. I'd just go from hotel to hotel to hotel all over the country wherever you're teaching. <laughs> Well, my, my wife owns the house, and I, she lets me come by every so often. That's fantastic. You just have so, to call first? <laughs> yeah, I have to call and make sure that uh, you're not there or some of the other guys are there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, all right. So, so like okay. I said, my name is Clark Lamping. I'm a captain uh, with the Clark County Fire Department here in Nevada. Now, if you've ever been to Las Vegas and you've been on the Strip, you've actually been in Clark County. If you're really familiar with Las Vegas, there's a street called Sahara that's on the very northern end of the Strip where Circus Circus and the Sahara Hotel are. If you go north of Sahara Road, then you're in city of Las Vegas proper. 
and all of downtown Fremont Street back to all city of Las Vegas. But everything south of uh, Sahara Road, so all the hotels of the Strip, as most people know it, that is all serviced by the Clark County Fire Department. I've been on the job for 25 years. Next, next week will be my 25th anniversary on the job. Out of those 25 years, I spent 17 years working on Las Vegas Boulevard and all the high-rises. Um, do a little bit of teaching and traveling myself. I'm a squad officer on Nevada Task Force 1, been deployed a few times. Um, and uh, that's, about, that's about all I've got to say about myself. Right? How are you guys doing tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Very well, and, I, and, I, and one of the one of the really cool things, and one of the reasons when, uh, and I, you know, we always are looking for something different. Uh, we want we want the fire service to hear, and and maybe they've never had the you know the privilege and the honor to you know actually see you speak or be in one of your hands on. Um, and I always recommend if somebody, if you see that name, if you see Clark's name out there, please get registered for that class because you're going to learn an immense amount um, of, of knowledge from the way he presents it. It's very unique. I think it's it's one of those things as an instructor myself, and, and I, I'm always watching instructors going, man, I want to be like that guy. I want to be able to do what he does. And um, So I, I, I'm just truly privileged and blessed. I, I hate that I'm kind of on the road this week when we scheduled this. I, I wish I would have. I wish I would have done it a little bit different and, and been in my office right now, so I could you know be a little more focused because I'm trying to also do a little roundtable thing while I'm here on the road too. So it's a little little confusing tonight, but we'll uh, we'll figure out something here. So I really wanted to start with something, um, and, I, and and I really want you to kind of the challenges that you face and when we when we think of Las Vegas we think of this one type of city but you guys have experienced some things that no other fire department or a lot of fire departments have never and, and you know pray to God they never have to experience some things you guys do but what what is in your opinion as a captain what is your number one challenge working the strip um, it is it has to be the absolute call volume it is all day, all night running calls. And years ago, 20 years ago, the way it used to roll is people would just sleep all day long, and they'd get up at about 7 o'clock at night. They'd go have dinner, and they'd start drinking. So we'd be up all night long with all the partiers <laughs> on Las Vegas Strip, right? And it happens every, all night, every single night. Um, well, then they came up with this concept of the day club, not just the night club. We have the day club. So out of these pools now, they have these DJs out at the pool, big dance parties, full, full drinks, everything like that, everything you can imagine going on, so there's no reprieve. We are running calls all day long at the day clubs. Then we're running calls all night long at the nightclubs. And when the city's motto is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, you're going to run into trouble <laughs> because people, honestly, people come to Las Vegas and they honestly believe that nothing is illegal. They come in Las Vegas and they're expecting they're expecting prostitutes. This is not a joke, Todd. They're expecting prostitutes. They're expecting drugs everywhere. You can find all that stuff, but you got to keep it on the down low. I remember this one time we were at a day club. Some guy shows up as this is a pretty typical story. Shows up to Vegas on a Friday night, starts drinking, drinks straight through Friday night, goes to the day club all day Saturday, is drinking all day Saturday, and then he goes out Saturday night goes back to the day club on Sunday and then completely passes out, completely falls apart. So we get called. We're at this day club, 
It's at the MGM hotel. We asked this guy, well, what happened? When's the last time you ate something? He says, oh, I think I had two tacos yesterday. <laughs> right? And have you had any water? This is Las Vegas. You're laying in the Las Vegas sun in July. Have you had anything to drink? He says, yeah, like 49 cocktails. Fantastic. All right, fantastic. And so we're assessing this guy, taking his vitals, and behind me, right behind me, I hear this sound. I turn around, and honestly, God, six feet away, there's a guy snorting cocaine off of a magazine at the pool. At the pool. And I turned around and looked at him and said, what do you think you're doing? And he looks at me and says, what? <laughs> I said, Hey, it's okay. that, we're that, sh- <laughs> yeah, that was his attitude. I said, hey, man, take that shit to the bathroom if you're going to do that. He says, what? And he actually said, it's not legal here? <laughs> no, you can't do cocaine off a magazine at the pool at the MGM hotel at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sorry, man. So back to the original question, Todd. It is go, 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 nonstop, 24 hours a day, uh, of bad decision-making uh, 24 hours a day, every single day, seven days a week. At Sunday, Sunday at 6 o'clock in the morning, we are still running calls to nightclubs. Wow. So Yeah, and yeah. I, I kind of uh, – <laughs> I, I had a good working knowledge of your of your guys' call volume, but I wanted I – th- I think everybody assumes um, that it's just – it's that, you know, peaks and valleys, but if you've never been, you know, for the guys that are listening or downloading have never been to Vegas, it is 24-7. It just never stops. There's never a break um, in Vegas, and it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm blown away about what you guys have to do and the job you guys actually do that, that, uh, that yeah. most guys will never experience or, you know, which is probably a, a blessing at the same time that nobody else has experienced. Right. It'd be good. Do. Hey, it'd be, it'd be fun for a ride along for about 12 hours and then go home. Yeah. Right? You, you don't want to live this. <laughs> Trust me. You don't want to live this. And I don't know if you've heard now we have formula one. We're going to have a formula one race in Las Vegas in November 2023, this November coming up, Formula One will be in Las Vegas, and the track is going to be right down Las Vegas Boulevard. Oh, so my gosh. No, I've not we, heard that. We found out. All right, so Formula One has so much money, so much international money. I think it might be one of the most lucrative sports in the world. So there is so much money involved. They have to have a very specific kind of asphalt, and they have to pave the entire track to make it completely smooth. So they're going to put a layer of asphalt all the way down Las Vegas Boulevard, right on top of Las Vegas Boulevard. They have to cover up all the bumps. They have to cover up every crack, every manhole. They have to cover everything and then run the race. When the race is over, they're going to come through. They're going to come through, and they have to take up all that asphalt and repave Las Vegas Boulevard. Right. That's, that's how much insane. money is going on here. That is absolutely yeah, positively insane. We are scratching our heads, have no idea how, how we're going to handle this? How we're going to handle this? Wow! Um, they, they said there's so much money, Todd. We don't even have enough uh, parking spots for private jets. We don't uh, have enough parking spots for private aircraft in Las Vegas to accommodate what's going to happen during Formula One. That will be and again. I mean, I think one of the things that I really want um, the guys to understand and listen to, though, is. <laughs> is uh, 
to understand how the the response and the difficulties and and those little things uh, and I'm not, and they're definitely not little obviously it's a it's a major event oh let me step back inside because uh, or the other event and I and I do let me let me personally apologize to Clark because of uh, my location and I, it's uh, it's not Vegas but it's a little wild here so that's perfect but, hey, never apologize to me Todd for being at a party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the and again, I want to bounce this to. Uh, I know in Mobile they have uh, they have monster events in downtown Mobile all the time. So I think one of the things I think would be really good from a learning standpoint for everybody listening, including myself, is the leadership that it takes to manage when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people twenty four seven or thousands and thousands of people at a special event there in the Mobile area, how you guys are managing that. How you guys managing your big parties? Uh, like, so we just finished Mardi Gras, uh, which is definitely the biggest thing we have as far as that kind of thing going on. Um, and my firehouse is right on the parade route. So one of the biggest things we deal with is just access, is getting out of the firehouse getting back to it with all those people because we, we just moved the rigs and right out of the other side of the station. But still we have people everywhere in front of the firehouse and just getting in and out safely and then changing our routes to get around the parade route to get where we have to go. But they set up a, an entire command system for it. There's a ton of overtime going on where they bring in chiefs, um, specifically dispatchers come down and it all runs out of, you've been to my firehouse, but all out of that side of the firehouse where they have, executive staff and all that. They set up an entire command post there, and then they have a unified command with PD. They have ambulances staged everywhere and uh, things like that, but they bring in multiple chiefs, always a minimum of an incident commander, an operations chief, and then specifically at least one dispatcher down there, all in the command post running it, and then they have uh, special events bike teams out in the streets, uh, many ambulances, golf carts, ambulances staged everywhere to try to take care of some of the smaller incidents and prevent us from having to go down there. And that's kind of how we manage that stuff. Um, they'll try to go, they'll get to fire alarms because they know it's going to delay our response getting there and let us know kind of what they see and what they have just to get some people on scene quicker, even though they don't have their gear with them. But um, that's kind of how we deal with it is, is the biggest thing is just access. We have so many people just in the street that we have to find ways to to get places and then just deal with safely getting down the streets and then securing the rig once you get there. You got so many people. It's a big drinking party. You don't want to leave a fire truck running in the street and someone get in it. So we're leaving people with the rigs to make sure of that and things like that. That sounds, Anthony, very similar to our New Year's Eve. Every every New Year's Eve in Las Vegas, we have about 300 to 350,000 people come down on Las Vegas Boulevard, and we shut it down to all vehicular traffic, and we open it up to pedestrian traffic. And uh, it sounds very similar to your response models. Ours is we have foot patrols all up and down the strip. Every foot patrol is paired with PD, and within those foot patrols is divided into to, uh, divisions, and we have division supervisors. Just this is just for EMS. Every foot patrol, every foot patrol has just a small complement of EMS here and a soft gurney. Then if we have to move someone, we can move someone to have to extraction points where we have ambulance extraction points lined up 
up and down Las Vegas Boulevard just rigs backed up. And anything happens inside the crowd, we do just basic EMS. We load them on a gurney, and then we roll them out to the, to the waiting uh, triage area, and then we send them out on an ambulance. Um, and then we always have fireworks on New Year's Eve. So we have fire watch. We have like 20 hotels fire fireworks off simultaneously. So every hotel has to be monitored by a fire prevention personnel. Um, we have the uh, – our command post is, is up and running during all of this. Uh, dispatchers involved, it's, it's really similar to what you're talking about. Uh, and just the complications for 350,000 people downtown for a party. Uh, police, we work very, very closely with police. Something – it's unfortunate, but it sounds like we're kind of unique in Las Vegas that we have a very good working relationship with our PD. And we've actually developed a lot of – policies and procedures with them. Um, uh, of course, we know some of the incidents that have happened in Las Vegas in the past, October 1, for one thing, uh, but we work very closely with our PD, and if you have these large events in your area, it's, it's necessary, it's absolutely critical that you're on the same page as PD. Um, so on for New Year's Eve, we have snipers. It's a sad state of affairs, but we have snipers on hotel roofs. We have snipers in parking garages um, looking down. <clears throat> And uh, we just have to know who, who is in what places at what times to make everything work correctly. So, um, and that's just one event, right? Uh, in 2000, uh, this next year, next year, we're going to have the Super Bowl. We have the Super Bowl here in Las Vegas, uh, February of 2024. So that's going to present a whole other set of challenges. We've never had a Super Bowl in Vegas before, so... Yeah, but I think one of the one just the mere fact you guys are dealing with such a large number of people, I think the Super Bowl will definitely be a new challenge. Uh, we spent in uh, when in Atlanta, it was months and months and months of planning for you know because they don't have. I mean, there's monster events you know every almost every weekend in the city, but a Super Bowl is a whole different, uh, obviously a whole different animal because they're dealing with NFL rules and NFL security and. Uh, and if somebody decides that, you know, somebody higher up at the food chain in Washington decides to come, that's a whole other level uh, that you guys will end up dealing with. So it'll be very interesting, and I'll be excited to hear about, you know, some of the things you guys do down the road with that. Um, real quick, and, and I let me – and I've just texted my, my – uh, I just texted the guys for everybody that's listening or downloading. Uh, I have to attend this other event, and I, ap- I apologize to both uh, Anthony and Clark for this. And uh, obviously, I have no doubt that Anthony's is going to knock it out of the park, and I'd you know just turn Clark loose, and he'll he'll definitely uh, feed into this and 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 give everybody a lot of incredible information. But brothers, I appreciate y'all. Uh, they're calling me to the stage to do something, so <laughs> I have to deal with this Todd, right now. But I Todd, truly appreciate y'all being on. on. I, I will definitely keep my clothes on for sure. <laughs> Even though this is a pool, I'm still going to keep my clothes on. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. I will Take talk care, to you all brother. soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Right. Have a good night. All right. All right, buddy. So, Anthony, how did it go for Mardi Gras? Any major incidents? Uh, any lessons learned? Uh, any wins we can, uh, so, you can share? So, so actually, this, this year was probably one of our better years for Mardi Gras. Uh, as far as from our end, a lot less incidents than usual, uh, specifically the violent type. Uh, I, I don't know that if there was any shootings or anything during it this year, uh, but we, a lot of that came from 
the New Year's Eve party, we had a mass shooting, and there was a lot of lessons learned from that that got implemented in Mardi Gras. And uh, one of those things was, like I said, with the way they set our command post up, um, during the, the New Year's one, they didn't have a dedicated dispatcher down there specifically at the fire department um, command post for the special events. They were using one from the regular dispatch center, which is what we'd always done. And just when everything broke loose um, and you had calls going out to 911 plus the reports from the special events people, uh, they kind of got they – they didn't even realize they had one incident immediately because it was people were running and then calling from different locations and things like that. So at first they were thinking they had multiple, I think they were thinking like three separate shooting incidents going on. And really it was all one. And one thing they, they learned from that in the after action, um, cause I got to sit in on a meeting was if we had a dedicated dispatcher just there, it would have helped with the communication, making one, making sure our people were safe that were literally right there when everything you know happened and all that, and uh, so they implemented that for Mardi Gras, and things went a lot uh, smoother. It's always Mardi Gras, we, we beef up the staffing so much on the special events side for every year. Typically, we don't have too many problems on our end. It's just what we, we deal with, and this year, uh, it seemed to go smoother. There was a lot more, uh, obviously, like I said, less violent things going on, um, and that, that goes back to just, you know, a bad incident that had just happened a couple months before, but there was lessons learned, like, no matter what, this is the new, you know, structure we're going to have of the command staff specific for special events. If we don't have, you know, overtime people available to do it, we're going to, you know, bring a chief down out of the field to run it. We're not going to move anybody up rank to do, to run these things. It's always going to be this, this, and this, no matter what. We're going to fill these positions with these ranks. We're bringing in a dedicated dispatcher just for this to be on site. We're going to do all these things. So it definitely helped from a command uh, perspective it seemed like from the way the outcome came um, that there were some lessons learned from New Year's from a bad incident you know but it, it did you know become a better thing for Mardi Gras which was a lot more people you know 220,000 people in the street was a lot more people than that incident on New Year's but everything went smooth and you can't say you know you didn't learn something from it when you did change some things so obviously it did have an impact absolutely I can't imagine Anthony I can't imagine a dispatcher not being dedicated to Mardi Gras. Can you imagine trying to run a dispatcher trying to run a fire and simultaneously trying to run Mardi Gras chaos? Yeah, which is during Mardi Gras, we had always done that. We always had dedicated dispatchers for Mardi Gras, but the smaller events didn't necessarily get that. And now it's no matter what the event is, if there's a big event downtown where they put special events on, they're going to have a dispatcher because of that event. So, and you know, Anthony, Gras, what they beef everything up. So, yeah, what what classifies in your jurisdiction? What classifies as a major event? Quotes major event. What would justify uh, command staff? What would justify um, extra resources? Things like that. What is what is that? Yeah, I don't know how they actually make that determination of what events they they put on full special events teams for. Uh, but basically, anytime they put a special events unit in play or units in play instead of just the, the field units handling it. They bring extra people in off-duty and, and put on special events teams. They get a full command structure and everything like that. Okay. So usually, Good. like, if they have, we, like, the Senior Bowl Parade, all those kinds of things, they get special events. Uh, big concerts downtown get special events. Uh, if they're, you know, if they're in the streets, 
they get a you know a, a structure. If they're in a, a concert venue, they just get some people. Uh, but then, like obviously, come Mardi Gras, everything is just massively, massively you know beefed up staffing wise. Yep. Yeah. We uh, uh, we have special events companies now that we classify anything as fifteen more than fifteen thousand people is going to classify as a special event. So that's including a lot of conventions, a lot of conventions, all sporting events. We have the, the professional hockey. We have the Golden Knights. Every Golden Knights game, we have a captain inside the command post, which is a unified command post. Uh, you're going to have Metro. You're going to have uh, T-Mobile security. You're going to have uh, traffic control in there. And it's, it works really well with the unified command post. You're sitting shoulder to shoulder with all the other decision makers in the organization. So it's very, very seamless if we were to ever have an incident. We do the same thing for Las Vegas Raider games. Uh, we have a command post set up, a unified command post set up. Same thing with traffic, with Metro, and all other uh, uh, necessary agencies. NFL has representatives in there. Um, but also a lot of the smaller ones, the smaller concerts and things, that requires uh, fire department presence. Now, just recently what we did, because we were staffing with overtime people, and we're getting slaughtered with overtime. We, we are getting mandatory overtime all over the place, and morale's pretty low because these guys are really, really getting worked. They're getting worked hard. As I understand, it's happening across the country right now. It's unfortunate, but it sounds like it's the sign of the times. So what we decided to do in Clark County is we have a dedicated engine. We have a dedicated fire station that is a special events fire station and anyone who wants to work these special events bid that fire station and that fire that captain is responsible for nfl games nhl games any other things like that and also the crew is responsible for uh for example uh raiders games we have companies in the parking lot we have uh guys on gators we have two people on a gator with a small fire pump and a hose on it driving the parking lots of Raider games that are uh, responsible for tailgate parties, small barbecue fires, things like that, maybe a car fire. It never fails. Someone takes their barbecue and slides it under the car when they go to the game, and uh, we have a car fire in about an hour after that. So we have Gators in the parking lots, and it's actually working. It is working really – we think it's working really well, and we are actually adding – in the process of adding two more – uh, two more engines and two more rescues as special event companies that are just going to be dedicated to staffing these special events. So it takes, it's a lot less of a toll on the overtime guys. And uh, if you want to work these events, if it's something that turns you on, then absolutely you can, bid these, you can bid these fire stations and work at these events. So that's something that we learned. Uh, and it, uh, as of right now, it's, it's working pretty well for us, I think. Yeah, ours right now, they, the bigger events like Mardi Gras and stuff, they typically don't have a problem filling with their overtime people. The smaller events they do, and then what they do is they just either the closest station, the closest companies go, or they'll pick one of the slower companies in the city and send them out and keep the other companies, you know, in that area free. Because, like, for us, uh, you know, a lot of times, like, they used to send some of the slower companies to do some of the standby stuff during, like, New Year's, for the fireworks instead of us because everybody knew once the fireworks were over, they were going to, everyone was going to Dolphin Street to party and we were going to spend all night dealing with that. So they would give us kind of the, the break during the fireworks and all that kind of stuff because they knew it was going to break loose on us later uh, once the special events people yeah. went home. So they try to do stuff like that, but we don't, 
we're definitely not to that level with having, you know, entire firehouses that that's kind of their job right now. For the most part, we're able to handle it with, uh, with overtime people, but it's all voluntary. It's people putting in saying, I want to go, you know, work this event. So that's what so far has worked for us. And Mardi Gras typically, that's our by far biggest thing. And a lot of people, you know, they want to work it. They have like the same people every year that they're into it and they want to be out there on bicycles or, you know, many ambulances, uh, golf carts and stuff actually being a part of it. And then we have every single parade and you might go to one parade and it's, you know, say three, four separate organizations having their parade, but it's all in one big, one big parade that day. And uh, every, every organization has its own fire company riding in it. There'll be an engine riding at the end of their parade that's responsible for anything going on as far as the fire during that parade with, you know, they got people on every float with an extinguisher or multiple extinguishers, whatever, but there's also a fire truck with every single parade as well. And that's on top of, you know, the special events dealing with medical and stuff like that. Yeah. But with Tom so John, I don't know it's what his fun. plan was. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I loved, I loved my time on the strip. I actually had to, I had to leave the strip after 17 years on Las Vegas Boulevard. Enough was enough for me. So I, I am currently at station 38, which is in the suburb, a little bit in the suburbs. I wouldn't call it a slow, slow station, but it's definitely not Las Vegas Boulevard. Um, and yeah, it's just enough. And I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed being in the center of everything. I mean, we had, like Todd was saying, we have everything going on. Uh, I was at Firehouse 11 for many, many years, about 11 years at Station 11. Uh, station 11 was the uh, safe house for the president of the United States, when, one of the safe houses for the president when he was in town. And they stored his motorcade there, which was really interesting. You come to work one day, and uh, all the rigs are parked on the apron, and I've got presidential limousines and suburbans inside the barn, and a lot of Secret Service agents cruising through the station, looking through our lockers and checking under our beds and stuff like that. So that's, uh, that was pretty exciting as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was. Right? It's nice. It's nice to get a break from Las Vegas Boulevard, but you know the, the young guys love it. I say, go get it, go get it, guys. Um, we're talking firehouses. We have firehouses run twenty thousand calls a year, Anthony. Firehouses run fifty to seventy calls a day as some of these firehouses we have. Whew. So, yeah, yeah. Well, like I said I don't. I don't know what Todd's plan was for tonight, but since he left it with me, I'm, I'm going to take it the way I. I I, what I want to hear you talk about, and we'll, we'll go down that road. But the first thing before we go into it, um, with just everybody hearing that, you know, you worked on the Strip for 17 years, and you, you get that mindset if you've been to, you know, Las Vegas, what the Strip looks like. But that's not all you deal with. You know, I mean, obviously that's not all of Clark County. That's not everything you're, you're dealing with. You're still dealing with a lot of what most of America deals with. It's not just the the, the – my dogs are going crazy. The, uh, the all the high rises and all like that. What's a what's a typical fire for Clark County Fire Department? Typical uh, common bread and butter fire. Yeah. yeah, just like everyone else, Anthony. Once people don't realize, once you get off Las Vegas Boulevard, a half a mile in each direction, we're a normal city. Just that we're open 24 hours, and you can have open containers on the streets. That's the only difference. Is it's a normal town. We have houses, and I have to say this because there's people out there that actually don't believe we have any houses or churches or anything in Las Vegas because they've never left Las Vegas Boulevard. But we have huge neighborhoods. We have, you know, our local shops. I personally don't ever 
go to the strip. If I don't have to, if I don't have to, I never go to Las Vegas Boulevard. We have all the restaurants, all the bars. Everything that I need is in, in my city uh, outside of Las Vegas Boulevard. So I would say that Clark County is very similar to all the other fire departments. We have a lot of residential houses, um, single-story, double-story. We have all kinds of economies going on. We have the 3rd Battalion, which is, is pretty rough, and we have the 6th and 7th Battalion, which are pretty nice. So it is, it is an absolute off Las Vegas Boulevard. It is just like everybody else. Yeah, I just wanted everyone, if, they, if they've only been to, you know, if they've been to Vegas or only when they think of Vegas, all they think of is the Strip. As we get into this stuff, specifically, I want to talk about training. Uh, they understand where you're coming from, and it's not just what they see in, in a picture of Las Vegas and it's the Strip or when they, they visited Vegas and that's all they saw. But uh, I definitely right. want to talk about training because, as we talked about before this started, uh, this, this year at HROC, you took on a, a much bigger role with uh, Bill kind of handing a lot of reins over to you. Uh, obviously, that, that must have meant a lot coming from Bill Gustin. Uh, so one, the, I want to start with kind of how you, you dealt with that, with taking that big, much of a bigger role and having to follow in his footsteps and keep a program that he created going at the same path and how you kind of went about, about that. Yeah, so uh, um... – I love HROC. I've been going to HROC for, I don't know, seven, seven, eight years now, working with Captain Bill Gustin out of Miami-Dade uh, every year. And uh, Captain Gustin just decided that uh, he is now too old to do hands-on training. Um, so he asked uh, myself if I would take over, if I'd take the lead instructor spot for the hands-on training for the suburban firefighter track at HROC. And uh, it was a, it was a, huge, huge undertaking for myself, a lot of stress and anxiety because it was Bill Gustin's track. And we decided, the cadre decided that it will always be called, no matter what happens, it will always be called Bill Gustin's track, um, high-rise, high-rise hands-on track. And I tell people all the time, look, if you buy a Carroll Shelby, if you buy a Shelby Mustang or a Shelby Cobra, does that mean Carroll Shelby actually built that car? No, absolutely not. But Carroll Shelby personally trained every single person who builds those cars. Same thing with Bill Gustin's track. We have a fantastic cadre that uh, Bill Gustin and myself has developed. Uh, we've got firefighters Jason Jones and Kyle Smith out of Atlanta. We have Jimmy Davis out of Chicago. Um, we have, uh, I'm blanking right now, Brent, Bo- Brent Brooks out of Toronto, Canada. Um, Mark Vanderfleiss out of Canada as well. Um, uh, I'll think of a couple other names, but uh, we had uh, Justin Velasquez out of the San Francisco area this year. Just have a fan, absolute fantastic cadre that I I couldn't do it without these guys, right? I am I am the organizer, I'm the logistics guy, right? But these are the instructors, and I tell you what, I'm going to steal a quote from John Norman. I am working with giants. These these individuals that I named are major players in their departments. They are major players in the high-rise firefighting um, group in the United States and in Canada. And uh, I am a very small piece of a very large pie, and I would be lying to you and everyone else if I could t- if I would tell anyone that this is my group. It's my group. I am just in charge of time slots and making sure the clock is running and making sure the students rotate through. Everyone else is responsible for the high-quality education they're receiving from this, from this hands-on training. And I tell you what, I, I couldn't be happier and I couldn't be more proud 
of the cadre we had this last year. It was absolutely fantastic. Went off without a hitch. Um, typically, we try to cap it at, uh, I forgot what the cap was, maybe 40 students or something like that. Well, Chief Isaacson contacted me and said, hey, we had a problem with registration. I forgot to put a cap on it. So you have about 100 and some students. So we added extra instructors. These guys said, no problem at all. Added a couple extra instructors, added a couple stations, and we crushed it. Everyone had a great day. We've never had a complaint from any student. In fact, when I stand up in the introduction, I introduce myself and I tell them, if you don't get what you wanted out of this hands-on class, if you're not dirty and sweaty and sore by the time you're finished, I will give you your money back for the conference registration, which is around $500. I said, I will personally give you your money back if our cadre cannot deliver to your expectations. And I've never had anyone take me up on that. Maybe they're just too polite, but no one's ever come to me and said, no, it wasn't what I expected. Yeah, that's awesome. And one thing I've always noticed with, uh, which I, I mean, been there, you know, a bunch of years as well, but just in a different, you know, the, the, the Ray McCormack track and all that with those guys. But one thing I've always noticed is I always see Bill the night before the hands-on, and I go sit with him, and he's got just notes and papers laid out, and he's going through every single detail down to the most minute aspect of every skill station making sure everything would go right. And then when you see you guys going, it's like just extremely smooth. Everything's working, just, you know, going off without a hitch. So uh, that's why I wanted to kind of bring that up, that uh, for anyone listening, that you, you obviously know what you're doing and uh, for Bill to put that trust in you. And also that's obviously a huge honor for you, so you should everyone should get to hear that, you know. He handed he, – he put his, trust, his faith in you to uh, take that over for him. Uh, so going yeah. off of that and down the, the, the training path, just on a, a regular a regular day, you're, you're coming into the firehouse and you, you, you don't have anything, you know, department level calling you saying you guys got this going on. It's your day, as, you know, as a boss to figure out what you want to do with your guys. What is your kind of favorite thing to do as far as just a company drill, just your company, whether you have in two different scenarios, you have a brand new rookie, and on scenario two, you have all just your senior guys. What's your kind of your go-to, how you're going to go about your day as far as training goes? How long you like it to be, what you like to cover? Um, yeah, so I, at, in Clark County, I believe we do a really, really good job uh, with our probationary firefighters. We have in the past, we've had a very good, a very good uh, recruit academy. And in the past, they have not been afraid to terminate people who aren't making the cut. So uh, I, we all have a lot of faith in our, in our uh, rookie school, we call it. And when the, when the probationary firefighters come out, they have a task book. And it sounds like it's pretty standard across the board. So it's a three-ring binder, and every month you have to do a series of skills. And the companies have to take the probationary firefighter out in January, and January is – pull the cross layoff, catch a hydrant, throw the 24-foot extension ladder, things like that. Uh, so that's, that's easy. I really, really enjoy having probationary firefighters at the station because we have a format on what to do. And uh, I, I insist that the senior firefighter has a task book. So every morning, the, the probationary firefighter comes to the fire station and he brings his task book into the captain's office. Says, here's my task book, sir. I said, I don't want your task book your task book goes to the senior firefighter. And the reason I do that is I am grooming the senior firefighter to be a captain. 
The senior firefighter's job is to go through the probationary firefighter's task book, figure out what he needs, what the senior firefighter wants to do for that day, and then the senior firefighter will come to me and say, hey, Cap, uh, we need to do this, this, and this. I'm going to need a parking lot with a hydrant. I'm going to need about an hour and a half out of service time because we're going to put hose on the ground. Can you make that happen? Absolutely, sir. And the, and the, the, uh, the senior firefighter is responsible for the training. He's responsible for the training, not me. And I will stand there and I'll observe. We're all participating for sure. I will observe the, the ongoing training, and I'm never going to interject anything during the class, but I might whisper in the senior firefighters here, hey, did you think about this? Hey, how about this? Hey, did you see him do this? Maybe we could do it like this. But besides that, it's the senior firefighter's job to train probationary firefighters at my station. Uh, and I feel that works, that works really, really well. And it's, it, gives, it gives the senior firefighter motivation. He is uh, interested. He's engaged at this point. He's engaged. He has, uh, he has some authority now. And I, I, I like grooming people for leadership positions. If I can't trust someone with a, with a probationary firefighter, how, how are we going to trust him as a captain later on? So even, even on scenes and things like that, the probationary firefighter always comes to the captain and says, what are your expectations? What are your expectations? I said, my expectation is you stay right next to your senior firefighter all day today. Okay? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the senior firefighter. The senior firefighter will be talking to you. You do not leave your senior firefighter's side in training, daily activities, on scene, on emergency scenes, anything like that. If we have a fire, do not let the senior firefighter out of your sight. Those are my expectations. You, Everything else we will work on. So, um, yeah, so what, I, what I like about that, that before uh, you move into, like, training senior guys, um, it's just how things correlate, and they're, they're kind of the same so many other places. Like, that's basically the same thing for me. Like, we have the task book. They come in. And, uh, but it's all online, so really I'm the only one in the crew that can get access to it. But we can, I can give it to them, and I'll do the same thing. I can print it out, and I can give it to the senior firefighter. And they, they work with them. And on day one, they, you know, as soon as we get them, we kind of let them go through the, the station cleanup, learn the truck with the, with the guys. And then I bring them in the office, and we talk about expectations, how we do things. And as soon as they come out of the office with me, our senior firefighter role, because we're so young as a department at this point right now, we've had a – we've just hit that – that era where we had went from like hiring classes of, you know, 15 people at a time to 30 people at a time. And now those guys are coming up on the 30, 35 year mark and they're all leaving. So we're, we're getting very young, very quick because we're losing way more in retirement than we used to. Um, so a lot of our drivers now fill that, that senior firefighter role because we don't have a bunch of just 30 year backstep riding firemen anymore. And uh, as soon as they come out of the office with me, my driver's waiting for them, and they're like, hey, let's talk. This is how it works. You come to me with everything. I'll make sure it doesn't go to him unless it has to. But we'll take care of you. We'll keep you out of trouble. We're going to teach you the way. And he really takes the role of doing a lot of the training, and I'm just overseeing it. And I'll set up the drill. Hey, this is what I want to go over, and once in a while I'll teach it. But most times he knows what I want done. I'll let him know, and he handles it. And it does a lot of things for us. Is One, it's given him the chance to learn to lead the junior firefighter, to teach and train somebody and prepare himself to promote. And it's also giving a little bit more of a, a comforting scenario to screw up on if he's training them while I'm doing paperwork in the morning in the office and they're getting the kinks out of it where he's making the mistakes so that when I come down and they do the drill in front of me, 
that rookie firefighter now is doing it very well. And he's, he's not getting the mistakes with his boss watching. He's getting the pat on the back saying, good job. We can move on to the next thing. So a lot of things on the same lines as what you were saying is what works for us. Um, and, like, our old right. chief, uh, he retired, and he now works for Gulf Shores, which is right there by Pensacola when you're down there. Uh, but he really made it click for me one day, and I've said this on here before, like, uh, in, our, in our firefighters' dorm, we have a very old stage, and our firehouse is built in 1925, so there's no, like, individual dorms. Myself and the truck captain share a dorm, and then all the firefighters share one big dorm on their own. And in their dorm is our gym. And usually come 2, two o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we say, hey, you know, it's your time for the rest of the afternoon. Get your workout in. Do whatever you want to do. And uh, so I went in there to work out, and the fire chief, he used to work with both, both me and the truck boss. So he came in. He was leaving for the day. Just came down to BS a little bit. And uh, we were talking, and I was looking around. I was like, man. I asked the truck captain. I was like, man, you see my guys? Usually they're up here to work out. And the chief was like, no, they're across the street. They got hose hooked up to a hydrant. They're flowing water down the street. I was like, all right, let me go over there. And I went to go grab my stuff. He said, no, let them be. Sometimes it's good for dad not to be around. And it really clicked for me that that's when yep. I started realizing, let, let them make the mistakes just in front of the senior firefighter. He's the only one that saw it. He's not going to tell me the mistakes they made unless it's a serious issue we need to address. He's just going to let it go and get them, get them right. And then when he calls me and tells me, hey, come down here, they're ready for you to see it. When I go down there, they do everything right. They get the pat on the back and, hey, we can move on to the next skill. And it's really worked really well for us, but also developed – those senior firefighters for when they promote. And one thing I like to do with them going into what I want you to talk about next is how you do, you know, senior firefighters is one of the issues we run into is when my firefighter promotes and becomes a driver, his first shift as a driver, he may be acting up as a captain. That's what happened to me. My first day as a driver, I was riding the seat uh, just because we let you ride up on day one. And uh, it's trying to prepare them to act, not so much to drive because, they're, they're driving for me when they, when they act up a lot. So when my driver's off, one of my firefighters is driving. So they get a lot of chance to drive and, and master that. But now they've got to put all the pressure on themselves that when they look back over their shoulder, tend to that call, like, I'm responsible for all these people. My decisions are going to directly affect them and their families. And so one of the things we try to do, like kind of our last drill, they're getting ready to get promoted. We know their promotion's coming, is we'll do some, some blinded-out drills where they can't see. They're advancing a, you know, a hose line. And they'll come across the victim, and no one else is on scene in this scenario. It's you. You got the nozzle man. We'll just, you know, change the staffing up sometimes. Sometimes they were riding four. Sometimes they were riding three. So he may have two firefighters with him, maybe just one. You came across the victim. No one else is here. What are you going to do? And we just work, try to really make that decision-making come into play. Is he going to think of the fact that in this drill, you know, he's got a 20-year firefighter and a rookie with him, is that going to impact how you deal with this? And we go through some of those things because his whole world's about to change. He's got to be able to make those decisions. So we go from really, really just like that skill set, skill set, skill set training to really focusing on decision-making with our senior guys because when they promote, they're acting possibly on day one. But for me, even the senior guys, we do a lot of the same things we did with the probationary guys just in a different way. We focus on stretching. Like we're an engine, that's what we're supposed to do. We're going to be really, really good at stretching. We're going to be really good at getting our mask on while we're at the door. Things like that so that they know when to open a nozzle. They know how to flow and move. They can get the hose on the ground very quickly and in place where it needs to be. Whether it's rookies or senior guys, that's kind of what we – we still focus on that basic stuff. A lot of people like to call things advanced and all that, but it all, for us, comes down to the basics. 
if we're really good at putting the line in place and getting masked up quick, we're usually typically able to be very successful. So even though it's senior guys, we may change up how we do the drill or, you know, focus on the verticals, you know, dealing with the hotels or the standpipes and things like that, not just the stretching of pre-connect, the stretching the bolt bed, but it's still we, we kind of typically fall back to we're an engine. We have to be experts at this. We have to stretch the line. We have to get the line in place. We have to be efficient. We've got to get our mask on quick. But I want you to go into now from your – you went from the probationary firefighter going to your, – now you're going in today. You don't have any, you know, department stuff coming down. It's just – it's Clark's day to do what he wants. But your whole crew, you have just – you have no probies with you if you have all your senior guys. Right. Before I go into that, Anthony, I have to ask you a question, personal question. How difficult it, is it for you to know the guys are out there training and for you not to go out there and get dirty and wet with them? Because I believe the hardest thing to do with the captain, the hardest thing to transition from firefighter to captain is take your hands off the tool. Take your hands off the nozzle. That was the hardest thing I had to do as a captain is not be on tools anymore. And my heart was aching when, I, when you were saying that the guys are out there across the street, they're pulling hose and stuff like that, and the boss says, no, you have to stay inside the station and let them work. And I know you're looking out the windows, right? I know you're just antsy. You're, you're jumping, oh, yeah. jumping. You're looking out the windows, right? How difficult was that for you to do? Just let those guys go and not get wet and dirty. Yeah, it was definitely harder at first than it is now, as I understand it more as time went on, how important that is. But also what I started realizing from it is as that went on, we used to do a lot of training with the recruits. We'd go down to the recruit academy and help out with them and stuff like that, especially with the hose stations and teaching them hose stretches and flow and move and the standpipes and all that kind of stuff. And there was a day that we had, he had 30 plus years on. He's getting ready to go back to the field. He's going to go out to the other side of the city. He's going to be getting, he's in the drop. He's going to be retiring in a couple of years. So, you know, you're not going to see him much anymore. So I'm over there talking to the captain that's about to leave in the academy. So I'm rarely going to see him, you know, the rest of his career will be different shifts and opposite sides of the city, you know. And uh, so they were doing, like, just basic hose stretches with the recruits. So he pulled me over, and we're kind of over under a pavilion where the recruits stage their gear when they're not using it, and we're talking. And, you know, it's hard for me to see my guys stretching hose, and I'm not doing it. So I got kind of my back turned, so I'm not seeing it, you know. And uh, this went off, like, 15, <laughs> 20 minutes we're talking. And uh, he says to me, he goes, man, you know, you know that's when you got a good crew. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, they're autonomous. You're over here. You're not even part of it. It hasn't skipped a beat. They know what to do when they're doing good. And then it was like it clicked to me, like, how important it is to let that senior man run it because what about the days I'm off? He's going to be the one acting up. He's going to be the one riding in that seat, and it's going to keep them safe. They're going to still do a good job. They're going to do what they're supposed to do, but he's ready. He, he knows what he's doing. And that's why I always tell people, like, in our role, like I said, day one, you could be the acting captain. My biggest thing is when I'm picking – no, I, I'm, I'm really lucky in where I'm at. I have a 100% hand-picked crew. Everyone there has asked to be there. It's a busier company dealing with downtown and all that, but they want to be there. It's a reputation for a lot of training. They want to be there. And, you know, so I'm lucky in that, that, that aspect. I have people that I picked, and they wanted to be there. And they're into it. They're all into the job. They're at all these conferences and all that. Like, you can't complain about the guys I got. But, um you know, I tell people, like, the biggest thing, though, is for me is who's going to be my driver? Because when I'm gone, I don't need to be sitting at home worrying about are they okay if they make a fire. I've, I've had my driver since he was a rookie. I had him as a, as a pro beat. 
he's come up, and when he got promoted, our driver at the time got promoted during the same ceremony to captain, and uh, a lot of savers were called in, and he got to stay. And uh, but So he knows the system very well, and one of the reasons he got to stay was the high rise, and he knows them very, very well. So when he was going to be acting captain, if you bring someone in that's got to learn the buildings or you had someone that already knew them, that, that was a big game, you know, game changer from a safety perspective of riding in that seat. So I tell people all the time, like, who, I'm, who I pick to be my driver, that's like the biggest decision I make because they're going to keep those guys safe when I'm not there. And I'm not, I don't have to be home worrying about how they're doing. Like, I know they're squared away with that guy. Things can happen. We all know that. But it's not going to be because he wasn't trying or he just made an uneducated decision. Like, he's put the time in to learn, and he's going to lead them correctly. Um, so that's a big thing, you know, for us. But that was one of the moments that, like, really made it click for me. Like, even when you've stepped away, they know what to do. Nothing's changed. They're doing exactly what you, they'd be doing if you were standing over there. And that kind of helped me understand the need to step back. Now I'm looking out the window, and I'm watching, and I see what's going on. So I can see, okay, we need to work on this. But I'm letting them handle it, not all the time, but, you know, once in a while, hey, man, work on this. He's struggling with this. Work on this and get it squared away. So the next time I'm down there, let me know when he's ready because I can see it's bothering him. And he'll have it, you know, let me know when it's good. So next time I see him drill on that, maybe it's a well hole stretch. He's got it down. He knows exactly what we're doing, and boom, he gets that pat on the back. Hey, man, good job. He doesn't keep making those mistakes in front of his boss and making it more uncomfortable and more nervous. That's just a hard learning environment. When you're with somebody that's not your boss, it's a little easier to make those mistakes and ask the questions that you feel might, maybe you should already know. It's easier to ask that question when it's not the person signing you great shit. Yeah, perfect. That is, Anthony, I don't have to tell you how fortunate you are that you have a company that operates like that, and it's a reflection of the company office. You are fortunate that you have such a motivated young crew that wants to come to work, wants to train. That's, that's fantastic. Wants to, wants to work, wants to do good for the community. That's exceptional. That is exceptional. My hat's off to you, brother. My hat is off to you oh, yeah, for grooming And it's not an accident, you. right? Yeah, they, but I'm not a big believer in luck, Anthony. I'm not a big believer in luck. A huge mentor of mine, and just kept going with what he was doing. You know what I mean? It was I was lucky. I stepped into a good spot for the company with a good reputation, and, and in a good spot, you get to go to work. You know what I mean? Like that obviously helps. <laughs> it obviously helps to recruit people uh, when you're getting to go to work and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, I, it wasn't it wasn't something built by me. It was it was just. You know, continuing what my mentors taught me. I came up in that company. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I was a firefighter on this, in the same company on the same shift. I was a driver in the same company, just on a different shift. Um, I've kind of worked there my whole career. I get promoted, they make you leave, I come right back the first chance I got. So, that home to me, <laughs> that firehouse is where I, I plan to spend my whole 40-year career. You know what I mean? So, I think it's safe to say, Anthony, that you're like herpes. Just when they think they got rid of you, you come back. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, but I also want to say, Anthony, I'm not a believer in luck, right? Winning the lottery, yes, that's luck. But having a company like you have, maintaining a company like you have, yes, you were handed a, a high-quality company, but you kept the company, and they didn't leave. They didn't leave you for other stations. They didn't leave you for other bosses. That has nothing to do with luck, Anthony. That has everything to do with oh, yeah. hard work, hard work. You know what I always say, Anthony? The harder I work, the luckier I seem to get, Right? Oh, yeah. I 100% agree with that. 
But so if we go back to your day, it's Clark's day, it's all senior crew. What's kind of in your mindset from a training perspective compared to that day you have that probie with you? Um, great, great question. Um, so what I like to do, Anthony, I like to go to all of our target hazards and just anything unique or different in our area, and I like to do pre-plans, uh, not official pre-plans. Let's, let's walk the property, and I'd like to have a discussion with the company. I want everybody's opinion on what do you think we should do here? What's the hose left? All right? Where, where are we positioning the apparatus? What hoses are we taking? Where are we entering the building? And then we can spend hours. We can spend absolutely hours at a property discussing everyone's point of view on how, on how this is going to play out. And I just really enjoy, instead of telling people, do this, do this, pull this hose off, stretch this hose here, I want to figure out what they're thinking. What, what is going on in your brain when we pull up to this building? Tell me, where's your water supply? Has anyone noticed the water supply? Has anyone noticed the building construction? What's unique about this building construction? What does that building construction do for our tactical objectives? And it's, I really, I learned so much just from listening to people speak. And many times, Anthony, I've changed. They have been able to change my opinion. I show up and say, if this place is on fire, this is what I want to do. Great. And then the company starts talking, what about this? What about this? What about this? And many times I say, you know what? I believe that's the right way now. I think that way is going to work better. That's going to work better. And it's, it's good that people have buy-in. The senior guys have buy-in. When the company officer listens to them and says, you know what, I respect your opinion, I respect you enough, then I'm going to ask your opinion. I want to find out what you're going to do tactically and strategically. And when you listen to your firefighters, uh, that's when you start gaining trust. That's when you start gaining trust in these firefighters. And it's, I, I really, really enjoy it. And in addition, right, when you first get promoted to captain, you have to rope. You don't get a spot. So you're just the overtime guy. You're filling in, right? You're the substitute teacher. And so I get a lot of captains come through, brand-new captains. They ask me, hey, what do I do for training, right? I'm the substitute teacher. I, I, I don't know what to do. It's a senior crew. I don't know. I tell them, here's what you do. You show up to the crew and you ask them, hey, do we have any target hazards in our area? Well, yeah, we do. Can you please – Firefighters, can you please show me your target hazard? Okay, so they drive you to the big, the big warehouse that's a uh, cabinet shop. They're making cabinets uh, full of sawdust, full of wood, massive fire load, outdated sprinkler system, all that. Oh, okay, yeah, this is a target hazard, all right. What are we going to do about it? What's our plan to fight this fire if it happens? And then you get the company talking about that, and even the, new, even the brand new captain can sit there, and the company will run the drill themselves. They'll be talking amongst themselves. Here's what we should do. No, here's what we should do. How much water supply? And it's a fantastic way to stimulate conversation. That's something different than just pulling hose and throwing ladders. Yes, we do that. We pull hose, we throw ladders, forceful entry, all that, that basic training. But also, this is something that we can stimulate conversation, uh, and it's a great learning experience for myself and everybody involved. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's actually something we, we talked about about a month ago in my company. is we, So we get a we, we call it a captain's book every year. We get it the first week of February, and it's got all the hydrant inspections assigned to that company on that shift and all the business inspections assigned to that company in that shift. And we get as soon as we get it, we're getting our hydrants done because the guys don't want to be doing it in the summer in 115-degree heat. So we get out, we, we knock out our hydrants, you know, that first month. And then we just start on business inspections. And we started talking about how when it first changed, we used to have to do 
years ago, we used to have to only do two business inspections a pay period. Two business inspections a pay period. So when you factor that up, you're looking at, you know, think about it, that's one a week. So 52 business inspections a year, that's it. And we're not just talking high, target hazards. We're talking in general. You can just go to the convenience store and I count it. And there wasn't a lot of structure to it. So people were doing the same one, so they, weren't, they didn't take a lot of time, you know, things like that. And then when we had the big ISO push and they, every business is going to get inspected, they started assigning them. So now we're doing, you know, a couple hundred business inspections a year. And at first, every, you know, the whole department's like, oh, this is terrible. We've got to do all this. And we were talking, and the guys were like, man, I've got to where I really – I like doing business inspections. And it was like, and it was exactly what you said. It was the, it was just a conversation. It was the, a very, very informal way of training that they learned a lot from in a building they could make a fire in. And they're all type A personalities, so they started getting competitive. If we get, you know, so it rotates. So engine three has the, we all have the same buildings, and they're just broken up in sections. So now we're on year four of this. We're back to the same buildings we did, you know, three years ago. We're, it's rotated through. So now as we're walking in the building, they're competing with each other, sitting there going, hey, I know where the fire pump is. I know where this is. Do you know where it is? Do you remember where it is? And they're competing with each other of who knows the building better, which is just pushing them through their competitive nature to be better and to know the buildings they're working in better. And the biggest thing to me with that is when, when I'm off and the, if the driver's not there, they get someone detailed in or working overtime that knows nothing about those buildings. Those guys in the back, even a one-year guy, has the confidence to say, Hey, Captain, I know this about this building. This, this, and this is what you need to know. And they're pulling up on scene. And that's going to always help the scenario and help the situation play out. But it's made it to where through those conversations, they've not only gained a lot of information, that is, uh, it, it's just as important as putting a hose on the ground, as knowing these buildings and that you're going into, like you said, the target hazards, the ones that have hazardous issues with them, or like for us, a lot of the high rises and stuff like that, is to recognize these things and know what they got to do so that they know you know, what the operation needs to be. Hey, this building's got PRVs on these floors. You know, that's a big deal. Hey, the fire pump's here. That's a big deal. The fire alarm panel's here. To be able to know that and not be looking for it, or, hey, we can't get any pressure. Keep pumping more. Hey, no, we're on pressure reducing valves. They're, you know, we can't adjust them, things like that. They're knowing that. It's just as important, but the, through that competitive nature, they've picked this stuff up, and it's, they've had fun with it. And the more it becomes fun, the more they want to do it. So we'll take a day in the summer, and we'll just go down Dolphin Street, which is like our small bourbon street. Everyone go out and get ice cream or something, and we'll just park the rig. Just walk down, and we'll burn a block down in conversation. Hey, you got this building, middle of the road, fire's in the rear. What are we going to do? Which line are you pulling for this scenario we're describing? Okay, now today you're riding on the truck. Where are you cutting the hole? All this kind of stuff. Are you taking that glass? Oh, you're driving today. Where are you positioning? You know, and it just takes – it just sparks these conversations that's very informal so because it's informal, they don't mind just putting their ideas out there. If they're wrong, they're wrong, and they learn from it. But they have fun doing it, so they're having – they're way more open to it, and it's not just this hassle of, oh, we got to go do BI today. Yeah. And if you if – you, it's such a lost opportunity if you go – we call them pre-plans, building pre-plans. You call them building inspections. If you do a pre-plan and you just pull up to a business and say, okay – Find me a water supply, find me the closest hydrant, find me a secondary hydrant, find me the gas, find me the electric, who's in here we fill out the sheet, how many people during the day, how many people at night, what's the roof construction, what's the fire protection system, okay, uh, give me the uh, person in charge's name, emergency contact, after hours contact, and walk out. If you're going to spend time in the building doing all that, 
why wouldn't you take advantage of that opportunity to just have a conversation? What if? What if, guys? What are we going to do? Let's get on the roof. Let's instead of just telling, okay, it's a, it's a uh, you know steel truss roof with a metal deck, metal corrugated Q decking. All right, let's get up there and walk around. See if we can find some skylights. Let's talk about popping skylights. Let's talk about how we're going to penetrate a Q deck roof with the road we saw. Let's talk about this stuff. It's just such a wasted opportunity if you don't. You're standing inside the building already. You have permission to be inside the building. Take advantage of those opportunities. It's, it's just a fantastic, a fantastic drill. And no one gets hurt. Right? No one's going to twist an ankle. No one's going to break a sweat. And it's, just a, it's a great opportunity to, to train. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's done a lot for us. Yeah, the best, the best high-rise fire training I've ever done, are you ready for this? EMS calls. The best high – I will stand here and tell you, and, hey, don't – you leave my mother out of this. She's a very nice lady. You don't disparage my mother. <laughs> the best high-rise fire training you will get is on EMS calls. When you're in a hotel room, right, watch – Watch the look in your firefighter's eyes, Anthony. Are they paying attention to where they are in the building? Or are, is it 2 o'clock in the morning and the medical bag's on their back and they're just trudging up the stairs, on the elevator, down the hall? And if I, see, if I catch someone who I don't think is paying attention, I'll say at the end of the call, I'll pull them aside and say, hey, all right, give me a mayday right now. Give me a mayday. Where are you? And what I find is they don't know what floor they're on. They don't know what wing they're on. They don't know what side of the building they're on. And I said, Hey, man, this is, there's, there's 5,000 rooms in this hotel, and we have hotels in Las Vegas with 5,000 rooms, Anthony. We have hotels in Las Vegas 10 million square feet under roof, 10 million square feet under roof. And I said, if you don't know where you are, if you're not maintaining your situational awareness on the EMS call, right, and you need a maid, hey, I'm lost, I'm lost in the MGM hotel. Hey, give me your wife's phone number because I'm going to have to call her and tell her to cancel Christmas because there's no way we're finding you in the MGM hotel without some kind of direction. So once you start telling your crews that, pay attention to where you are. And then when you get off the elevator, you tell one of your firefighters, this is an EMS call, right? We're going to a chest pain or abdominal pain or whatever or drug overdose like we do in Vegas. Um, hey, firefighter on the left, I need you to count steps, estimate the stretch. Firefighter on the right, I need you to count doors. And when we get to the, when we get to the room, I need to look at that firefighter on the left, and he's going to tell me um, – it was 30 steps, that's 90 feet, 90 feet of hose, that's 100 feet of hose, plus 50 feet to get in the, ho- to get in the hotel room, and plus 50 feet because we're hooking up on the floor below with a 200-foot stretch. And the firefighter on the right is going to tell me it's the seventh door on the left. All right? And what I do, I ask that so many times that I, I actually quit asking them. At, at some point, when we're walking to an EMS call, as we walk in the room, the firefighter just whispers in my ear, 250-foot stretch. And that's it because it comes automatic. And then when the call's over, all right, we'll take the elevator. Down. No, we're not taking the elevator down. We're going to take the stairs, and we're going to start looking at standpipes. We're going to start looking at PRVs. We're going to have a PRV class is what we're going to do. And we're going to talk about our stretches and stairwells. Are we going to well stretch this? How about our vertical stretches, right? What's our plan B? What's our plan B? Because everyone knows that standpipe systems and high-rises are inherently unreliable. So as you're walking up, as you're walking up to an EMS call, Plan A is going to be, if you're on the upper floors, plan A is going to be the standpipe. But you better start formulating a plan B immediately. And the plan B can't be, oh, remember remember five years ago when we were at HROC and we listened to that guy, what was his name, Rowett or something? What was his name from, from somewhere down the south? He was telling something about a, a vertical stretch or something like that. You got to remember how that went as the building's on fire and the standpipe fails. 
that's not the time to start discussing a plan B. As we are ascending, as we are ascending on an EMS call, we are talking about plan B. Is this a well stretch or is this a stairwell stretch? Can we take this window? Does this hotel have hurricane glass on it? And we don't have hurricanes in Las Vegas, but we have hurricane glass on our windows to keep people from breaking windows and jumping out. Because um, it's Las Vegas again. Anthony, stranger things have happened. So uh, <laughs> take advantage Take advantage of your EMS calls and talk about these things. Every single call, every single call offers so much opportunity to do some training. And if the companies aren't doing it on a regular basis, if it's not ingrained to step off the rig and give yourself a brief initial report and do yourself a, um, an assessment on uh, who's in the house, right? If you're taking a look at the vehicle, the configuration of the vehicles, the stickers in the vehicle windows, the, the toys in the yard, things like that, uh, the rescue profile, do a BIR and do a rescue profile. If you don't do that on every call, call and that's not natural for you, then when it is the place is on fire, you get off that rig, I guarantee you you're not going to do it then. You're not going to do it then because your adrenaline's going to be up, you're going to have tunnel vision, and it's go time, and you're going to miss a lot of cues because you've not been doing that. You've not been doing that. So every single EMS call is a fire at our station. Every single EMS call is a fire, and we're going to treat it accordingly. I'm, I'm, I'm the captain. I'm looking at the maps pulling up. I'm telling my driver, um, we have two hydrants on the street. They're on the north side of the street. Even if it's a chest pain call, I'm telling the, I'm telling the driver, there are hydrants on the north side of the street. It looks like it's about 50 feet in front of our, our building right here, just in case you wanted to know. And I'm telling the firefighters in the back, which I've got young firefighters, and I tell them, get off Instagram. If I catch you on Instagram, on the, on the way to the call, uh, I, can't even say, I can't even say on the podcast what I tell these people, but please stay off Instagram. Put your phone down and put your head out of the window and take a look at the neighborhood. Try to, try to guess what kind of a house we're responding to when we pull into the neighborhood just by, the, by the, the way the houses look, right? Get off Instagram. Every single EMS call is a fire call as far as I'm concerned. Man, I love that answer because it just shows how much common, commonality there is across the country. Because so much of what you just said is what we do, and it's what, just what was passed down to me by the senior guys. From no phone, we, we don't do cell phones in the truck. We just don't. You, you can get on that later. Unless it's an emergency phone call, obviously answer your phone. But other than that, whether it's a call or we're just riding around, get your head out the window, know where your hydrants are, know your streets, know your buildings, see which buildings are under construction, see which ones are vacant or so-called vacant when we ride through in the middle of the day. When you go for a medical run that night, you can see people inside, and, you know, they got a little fire going for heat, things like that. Uh, we, go to a, we go to a call, the same kind of things is like I tell my driver, every, every EMS calls a fire. I want you to position it as if the building was on fire. Where are you going to position that that ladder truck gets the front of the building? Because now we'll give the ambulance the front of the building. We don't push the stretcher as far. But you got training. When you position the rig, you're always thinking about the same thing. I'm pulling past, I'm doing this, and it works. Uh, we're, you know, we make a medical run. That's our chance to get in the building. We don't get to get in. Uh, you know, we get to do business inspections in commercial buildings, but residentials, they're, they're by request. We can't just walk in and, hey, we want to inspect your house. But when they call 911, we get to get a look at it. And when we walk out, you'll hear guys saying, because it's not the best neighborhood, hey, man, do you see all the locks on the back door? Do you see that two-by-four that had, has a drop bar across the back door? Okay, if we come here, we got to worry about this. They're talking about burglar gates. How do we? We're leaving. You got a rookie. Hey, man, how are you going to beat that gate? How are you going to do this? Hey, how are you going to get these burglar bars off? You know. And then high rises, we do the same thing as you. From one, we're, we're taking the stairs down, and we're going to talk about the valves. One thing they're really big about. I have them. 
from day one, we constantly talk about it to where they, they constantly think it in their mind. We come out of the elevator. If they see, if they see a standpipe outlet sitting at the, at the elevator lobby, they're looking to see if there's a set of stairs there in the middle of the building. And if they're not, they're saying, hey, Captain, we, got a long, we might have a long stretch here. Because they had to put a, a standpipe outlet in the middle of the hall with no stairs that we would ever use. That means it's based on the, the, the run that they're allowed to have between the outlets. We might have a long stretch here. And it's forcing them to remember that about those buildings. And then when we leave, typically we go, okay, now how many from the apartment, if things got bad, you had to get back to the stairwell, how many doors was it? And, and they're, they're constantly getting it. And like you said, it doesn't take long for them to pick up that those questions are coming. And they're making sure they know the answer. So it's something you don't even have to really talk about anymore because they're just saying it. Hey, Captain, did you see that? We might have a long stretch. There was that elevator lobby outlet, and there wasn't any stairs. Hey, that, that apartment was three, three doors down from the, from the stairwell. Okay, good. You don't even have to ask anymore. They're just doing it. You know, and it, that's, we're, we're right on the same page that we just try to make everything we go to the chance to learn something about that building if we go to a fire in it. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. We had, we had something, Anthony. I, I have this in my, my high-rise presentation. Um, we had a truck company. A truck company was on a medical call at a brand-new 10-story high-rise student housing at the university, brand-new building. So they showed up. They had the medical call. They solved the medical problem. They're walking out. They said, we're going to take the stairs. They walked into the stairwell, Anthony, and they found on the standpipe they have Knox locks. Knox keys locked on the standpipe. I don't know if you've ever seen that. If, I, if not, I'll send you a picture of it. If anyone, if anyone else is interested, I'll send it to you. Typically, we find these specific Knox keys on FDCs because, you know, people are stealing the brass on the outside. So we have a, a Knox key on hydrants. It's an approved lock for hydrants. It's an approved lock for uh, fire department connections on the outside of the building so people don't steal your stuff. But this truck company found those Knox locks on standpipe outlets inside the stairwell. If they wouldn't have located that on an EMS call and they would have had a fire in that building, we'd have had huge troubles, huge troubles because, you know, not even Rex Morris is getting that lock off without destroying those threads, right? That lock is not coming off that standpipe outlet, right? Um, so yeah. what do you do? Oh, yeah. He took a picture of it. That, that captain took a picture of it emailed the chief of operations, hey, chief, we just located this, simple fix. So now every hydrant bag has a, a Knox key on it. Now every standpipe bag, he bought another, what, 50 or 60, bought another 50 or 60 uh, standpipe keys or Knox keys and put them all in the standpipe bag. Simple solution. My hat's off. It was truck 18. It was truck 18. My hat's off to truck 18, and I give them props every time. I can't remember who the captain was, but that's how you solve problems. That's that is high-quality training, high-rise training during EMS calls. And leave my mother alone. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one thing we haven't run into yet. We have them on our FDCs, but we haven't had – we don't have any buildings yet in the city that they're putting them on the outlets themselves. But as we get into the – to close the show out, I want this uh, – I got one question I've been waiting to ask you. as kind of the, the final thing for you to talk about in the show. You said you're, what, a week away from your 25-year anniversary on the job? If you could go One back away, 25 yeah. years, if you could go back 25 years to, to probationary firefighter Clark, what would you tell him? Uh, easy. Shut your mouth and open your ears. Because I tell you what, I didn't have any experience with the fire service. I just kind of 
I, I responded to an ad in the newspaper, right, and that's why I applied. I had no experience with the fire service. Only after I started applying did I, um, did I start uh, talking to firefighters and things like that. Anthony, I came from a construction background. I, I owned a construction business. I owned a flooring business, and the flooring business was just the construction industry, right? It's dog-eat-dog. It is doggy dog. If your if your order's not there, your customers mad. You're chewing people's asses. It is rough. The construction is is rough. It is rough. So here I show up as a probationary firefighter, and I got guys younger than me, smaller than me, running their mouth. Hey rookie, do this. Hey hey you dumb you dumb effing da 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 rookie rookie blah blah blah. And instead of playing the rookie game, my response was f you. You want to take this outside, <laughs> right? And I, I am self-proclaimed, Anthony, self-proclaimed the worst probationary firefighter in the history of the Clark County Fire Department. I ran my mouth so much because that's, that's all I knew. I was a construction worker. I'm a construction worker, and, and stuff was going south, and my first thing was to start dropping F-bombs and, you know, this and this and this, and this, and the captain's trying to correct me. I'm like, what do you know, dude? Right? So, yeah, I had a really, really rough probationary year, and uh, – I would absolutely tell myself, hey, man, you're not all that. You're not all that. You're not that good. You're definitely not that tough, and you're going to get your teeth knocked out. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Open your ears, and these people who you're talking to actually have something to offer. Listen to them. That's what I would tell probationary firefighter Lamping. I love it. I love it. So as we close it out, um, um, we usually have your final thought, but I wanted to address it that way since you said uh, – you're coming up on your 25 years, and congratulations on that. Uh, you take a second to give anyone listening uh, how they can get in touch with you, places they might be able to see you speak and teach. Uh, yes. Um, so I'm on Facebook. I love Facebook. I'm like, a, I'm like a teenage girl when it comes to Facebook. I love that stuff. I'm on every day. Clark Lamping. Um, if you need my email address, Clark Lamping at Hotmail. That's C-L-A-R-K. L-A-M-P-I-N-G at Hotmail. Um, and uh, in Clark County, Anthony, I believe we have a really, really good high-rise operations plan. I think we have a really good high-rise elevator plan. We also have a really good high-rise, not sorry, I'm sorry, hostile MCI policy. If anyone out there, if there's anything I can do for you professionally, please don't ever hesitate to reach out. If I didn't want to hear from you, I wouldn't be giving you my email address, my personal email address right now. I love talking about fire and I love drinking beer. All right? If you're ever in Las Vegas, and most people come through Vegas, if you're ever in Las Vegas, please book me up. If I'm off, we'll go out for beers. If not, you can actually come by the firehouse and we'll talk. I will give you anything you need personally or professionally um, to help you out. So that's what I have to offer. In addition, Anthony, um, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of uh, an old friend of mine. His name is Pauly Shapiro. Pauly Shapiro was a fire, en- uh, fire engineer for the city of Las Vegas for a lot, a lot of years. He's an author. He used to write for a Fire Apparatus magazine. He has a book. His book is uh, it's a fire engineering publication of large volume water delivery. Uh, he's a great author. In that, in that book, uh, he talks about all kinds of different buildings and how to supply water to them. There's a whole chapter on supplying high-rise fires, which I assisted him in the research. We had a hotel, a vacant hotel, the Riviera Hotel, which we did, conducted all the testing and all the numbers 
for that chapter in that book. Um, well, Paulie Shapiro, he is, uh, for lack of a better term, he's circling the drain. He's not doing good. He's got some significant health problems. Uh, Paulie Shapiro is a mentor of mine. And um, anyone out there, I don't know what God you pray to or whatever you do, but if you could keep uh, Paulie Shapiro in your thoughts, he would appreciate it. His wife would appreciate it, and I would absolutely appreciate it as well. Yeah, absolutely, brother. We'll definitely be, uh, be praying. But uh, that's how we'll close it out with uh, how they can get in touch with you. Um, is there anywhere you're going to be teaching coming up that someone could take, you know, get a chance to sit in your class? Um, not FDIC this year. Um, I what might be maybe working with uh, Sam Vega. I understand you had him on your program last year. Yep. Sam Vega with the IFSI. Uh, we might have something going on in Illinois for that Illinois for the uh, engine company, engine company yep. operations manual that we're working on. So I, I was invited to that. So that's a possibility. Uh, I might be going to Winnipeg, Canada with Jeff Seaton, who is an officer out of San Jose. We might be doing some big box fire teaching there. Um, but uh, hey, I'm always up for coming to your place, right? If you need if you need a high rise class or anything like that, if you need anything, reach out. I'll come. I'll come. Hell, I won't even charge you. I'll come and just drink. Just buy me some beer and some food, and we'll call it. How's that? <laughs> All right, brother. Well, I'm sure we'll be running into each other pretty soon. So uh, be good until then. And, yes, we will. Uh, have a good night, and be safe next time you're at work. Thank you, sir. You too. Thank you for the time. All right, have a good one. And thanks again for your time tonight, bro. All right. All right, brother.